essentially the holy grail is to discover the gene that's responsible for a condition. Uh, many people spend their whole careers looking for the genes responsible for a condition and never find it. And Albert discovered the genes responsible for over 14 conditions during his lifetime. Coming in and having these leadership positions as early on as she did and paving the way as she did for, for female physicians and female scientists is something that is an overarching accomplishment. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and this is a, a special episode of our podcast dedicated to the memory and the legacy of two of the real giants in the world of cancer research and two of the leaders who helped build the James into one of the world's best cancer hospitals and comprehensive cancer center. And that's Clara Bloomfield, one of the world's best blood cancer specialists, and Albert de La Chapelle, one of the world's leading cancer geneticists. They were a married couple, and sadly, they each uh, passed away this past year, Dr. Bloomfield in March at the age of 77, and Dr. de La Chapelle in December at the age of 87. Combined, they were responsible for just an incredible amount of groundbreaking research and for discoveries that have saved and extended the lives of an incredible number of people in Ohio and around the world. Um, I have two guests today to talk about them. My first is Heather Hample, an amazing geneticist who worked closely with her mentor, Dr. De La Chapelle. And then after the break, I'll talk with Anne Catherine Eisfeld, a great physician scientist who worked closely with and was inspired by Dr. De La Chapelle and Dr. Bloomfield. Heather, thanks for joining us and helping to pay tribute to these two amazing doctors and your friends. Thanks for having me. So this is going to be, a, my first question is going to be a little bit of tough one to sum up in just a couple minutes, all the work of Dr. De La Chapelle. So fill us in. He's, was, he's one of the, the great geneticists in cancer research. How, tell us about what he did, what he discovered. Yeah, it, it, he had such a long and productive career. I almost can break it up into sort of four um, topic areas. Um, and a lot of his work actually when he was young and in Finland, um, before I knew him, uh, was actually on the sex chromosomes. Um, so he was um, one of the first people to discover some of the sex chromosome aneuploidies. So this would be like an XX male or an XY female. And then uh, continuing that work found the areas on those chromosomes that were responsible for determining um, sex. Um, and that led to some interesting stuff where he was involved. He fought um, uh, a battle uh, with the Olympics Committee um, because they were discriminating against women who uh, had XY chromosomes um, and not letting them compete because they said they were males. Um, and he um, advocated strongly uh, that they should be allowed to compete as women. And um, this was like a whole very, very interesting uh area of his early work. Uh, but at some point, he uh, saw that molecular genetics was going to be the future and um, kind of moved out of cytogenetics, which is this chromosome work, into molecular genetics, more the gene level work. And he did some additional training uh, in the laboratory of uh, Dr. Paul Marks in uh, New York. And that's uh, something we shared in common Paul Marks uh, was the director of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center when I worked there early in my career as a cancer genetic counselor. And his wife, Joan Marks, was the director of my um, genetic counseling training program. And these are the kind of connections Albert would find with people, and um, they were important to him. It was, I often say, you know, that... We, we draw family trees in genetics and we call them pedigrees. And while Albert didn't have any children of his own, he had a very extensive pedigree and it consists of the people he trained and have subsequently the people they trained. Um, and he would find these connections. And so I had this connection to him through the Marks family. Interestingly, Dr. Marks and, and, and Joan Marks both passed away in 2020 as well. Um, so I lost a lot of mentors this year and he and I had actually communicated about um, Paul Marks passing away. 
in the spring. He, he um, you know, when he used to run our human cancer genetics weekly meeting, if a luminary in the field had passed away, he would roll out an overhead protect projector and put on an overhead with their picture and, and talk about their life and their career and their contributions. And these, these things were important to him. And so it's important to me to share uh, all of this about him today. So I'm, I'm picturing geneticists all over the world when he passed away, they, they weren't having their meetings because of COVID, but geneticists all over the world were aware of and thought of him and his work. Absolutely. Um, I, I've now written uh, three tributes um, for professional groups who his work was that important to them and they wanted to share with their membership that he had passed away. Um, and a lot of it, uh, uh, several of those have to, to do with some work he and I did together. So maybe I'll talk about that chapter of his contribution now. So um, he is well known for his work on colorectal cancer genetics, and that's what he and I um, have spent the last 23 years working on together. Um, and that's because he actually discovered a characteristic in colorectal cancers back in 1993 called microsatellite instability. Um, and this is a characteristic that is common in um, individuals who have a hereditary colon cancer uh, condition known as Lynch syndrome. And so he then eventually actually also discovered one of the genes responsible for Lynch syndrome and had just done some work in Finland um, before they came here to the U.S., uh, where he had studied a thousand colon cancer patients to determine uh, using microsatellite instability who was more likely to have Lynch syndrome and then using genetic testing to determine what percent of colon cancer uh, cases were due to Lynch syndrome. Um, and the result in Finland was about 2.7%. But he was worried that it might be different there because Finland's known for having a lot of what we call founder mutations. Um, so there were a limited number of founders of that population, which can make one mutation more common than others, and it can change the prevalence. So he was really excited when he moved to the U.S. to um, repeat that work in a more admixed population in the United States. And so um, we've began a series of studies on this topic. So I just want to make sure I understand and everyone else does how big of a discovery this was when you discover a genetic mutation that causes a, a, a type of cancer, this put into perspective how big that was. Well, so for anyone in the audience who uh, has an interest in or works in genetics, um, essentially the holy grail is to discover the gene that's responsible for a condition. Uh, many people spend their whole careers looking for the genes responsible for a condition and never find it. And Albert discovered the genes responsible for over 14 conditions during his lifetime. Um, not just this one gene for Lynch 14. syndrome. Wow. Yeah, 14. And um, se several, some of them that he did the linkage to, some, some, a subset he actually found the gene. There's a syndrome actually named after him. Um, and he found a syndrome that is lethal in the Amish of Ohio. He found the gene for that since he's been at Ohio State. He's done so many things that uh, you could barely scratch the surface. We would need hours. <laughs> but so I'll try to hit the highlights. But I don't know um, if you've heard the story of how they came to Ohio State, he and Dr. Bloomfield. A little bit. Dave Schuler talked a little bit about how he, I think he recruited Dr. DeLaChapelle first and didn't know of his connection with Clara, is that? I think it was the reverse is what I was told. So yes, Dr. Bloomfield was recruited to come in to be the new director of the cancer center and Albert was the trailing spouse. <laughs> so um, that's what we call it in academia when you're recruiting somebody and you have to get the spouse a job to get them to move. Um, but it turned out he's a world-class geneticist. So they were able to bring him in to run human cancer genetics. But the truth is the two had been married for 15 years and living in different continents. He was in Helsinki, Finland at the University of Helsinki, and she was at uh, Roswell Park in Buffalo, New York. Um, and, you know, I don't think many of us can imagine being married 15 years and living on a separate continent from our spouse. Um, what had happened was he turned 65, and that is uh, the age of mandatory retirement in Finland and he wasn't ready to retire. So that set them looking for a place they could move to together um, to kind of do the next chapter of their career. And as you might imagine, all the biggest cancer centers tried to recruit them. 
And I, to this day, do not know how we won at Ohio State, but we are um, changed ever more because of it and so lucky. Um, but they said often um, that they found their little spot of heaven in Delaware, Ohio, which is where they ended up buying a large property and living for the last 23 years. And from what I understand, Clara came as the head of the Comprehensive Cancer Center. And as you mentioned, Dr. De La Chapelle came to run the Human Genetics Program, which at the time was not the world-class genetics program. No, no, I don't even, it didn't really exist. He had to build the thing from scratch. And I think that was, uh, that was great foresight on Dr. Schuler's part. He recognized that was an area that was about to explode in uh, oncology. And um, that, that was really uh, kind of a stroke of genius on his part, because then, uh, and then bringing in Dr. De La Chapelle to build, you know, what has become really known worldwide as, you know, a premier cancer genetics program. So he started with the Babe Ruth of cancer genetics. I would say, I say Babe Ruth because I don't know the most famous uh, Finnish athlete. (laughs) That's the best way to build a program is you get the world's leading expert in that. And the same thing with Clara Bloomfield in the blood cancer. um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Superstars for the price of one. And they brought along Mike Caligiri with them. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, really had um, always both of them been tremendous mentors and, um, and really almost set up their succession plans from day one by training other people who could then lead uh, after them. Um, so yeah, they both arrived uh, in August of 1997 and I was working in New York at the time, but I'd grown up in Ohio and actually graduated from Ohio State in molecular genetics and was looking to move back home. I had a job offer at another cancer center that wasn't a comprehensive cancer center. Um, and my boss in New York said, no, I think you should go to a comprehensive cancer center. And I said, well, I'd really rather go to Ohio State, my alma mater. And he said, well, they just hired Dr. Bloomfield and Dr. De La Chapelle. Let me give him a call. Um, so he was also a hematologist, so a hemonc. So he knew Dr. Bloomfield really well and Dr. De La Chapelle, and he called him. And his story is that he said, I have a gift for you, Albert. Um, but he basically told him that I was a cancer genetic counselor, that we'd enjoyed working together, um, that he knew I wanted to move back home and suggested that Albert, you know, should consider hiring me. And so five minutes later, Albert called me, talked to me for a while on the phone and hired me on the spot. Sight unseen. <laughs> well, that's that's the job of someone running a program is to bring in the best. Yes, <laughs> I, I hope that I hope. Um, you know, you just arrived, and I I then started uh, a couple months later. I started then in November of 1997. So we have in, in fact worked together from the very beginning here at Ohio State. So tell me a little bit about um, Dr. De La Chapelle. What was he like? So, you know, internally, uh, we would often say, you know, if you're a Harry Potter uh, groupie out there, we called him our Dumbledore. Um, He was a gentleman in every sense of the word. Um, He was a great listener and was so curious. And I think that characteristic is actually what led to his great success in genetics, right? Because you know, if something, if a result came back unexpected, some people think, oh, that's just wrong and they ignore it, but he wants to know why. And so things that might get missed lead to new discoveries. He's a quiet guy. You've met him. No, <laughs> I I him. Never, you did. <laughs> I've never met him. I met Clara Bloomfield once, but I never, I never met him. So they were completely opposite in temperament. And so maybe that was the match. Um, so he, he was very, very quiet and sort of finish and, you know, stiff upper lip and proper. Um, and she, I remember the first grand rounds I sat through with her, she, she sort of stopped the speaker mid, mid grand rounds and made them back up a couple slides and explain something to her. And I was like, Oh, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> but when you're the head of the cancer center, you, it turns out you can. <laughs> well, I never met Dr. DeLachapelle. I did hear a story about him. His office, his lab was on the ninth floor of the uh, research tower. And I heard that he never took the elevator. 
never. Um, so he took the stairs up in the morning, back down for lunch and back up again after lunch. And if you were walking with him from a meeting, you had to do the same. And I'll never forget, he and I had a meeting um, on campus when I was about eight months pregnant with one of my boys. And I was trying so hard to walk up these stairs with him. And I'm like catching my breath. And he's like, you know, 80 and uh, trucking it up the stairs. So yes, he, he never, never took the elevator. Now, the, the thing that you uh, mentioned briefly before with the Lynch syndrome that I think is going to be uh, one of his legacies and also something perhaps yours as well, is the testing that came out of that that has saved countless lives around the world. So talk about how you went from identifying a genetic mutation and how you use that knowledge to prevent people from ever getting colorectal cancer. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting and rewarding. And there's one other sort of coda on this work that I know uh, that just happened in 2015 that really um, brought the whole work full circle and I know gave him immense um, satisfaction. And so I, I should mention both of those things. So um, yes, he had discovered this characteristic microsatellite instability. He had discovered one of the four Lynch syndrome genes and had, you know, had this idea that maybe we should screen colorectal cancer and endometrial cancer patients for Lynch syndrome at the time of diagnosis by testing their tumor for this characteristic and then offering genetic testing to those who had this characteristic in their tumor uh, because that meant that they were more likely to have this hereditary type of cancer. And that's really important for a couple reasons. One is that individual then is at extremely high risk for getting a second or a third cancer during their lifetime, which we have the ability to prevent because we can do screening or prevention and try and keep them from getting it. But maybe more importantly, they have brothers, sisters, sons, daughters. It came from one of their parents, which means there's aunts, uncles, and cousins that are also affected. And a lot of these people haven't had cancer yet at all. And so once you find that individual with Lynch syndrome, the first person who from the cancer patient that you started with, you begin a process we call cascade testing, where you test all of the at-risk relatives in the family. And that is where it really starts to have huge impact because these are unaffected, sometimes very young people who you can keep from getting cancer in the first place and save lives. Um, and so, yeah, that was, we, we've done really three very large studies in Ohio since he arrived in 1997. The first was called the Columbus Area HNPCC study. HNPCC was the old name for Lynch syndrome, it used to be called that. Um, and that was a study he got an R01 grant from the National Cancer Institute to do, and I was his study coordinator for that study. Um, that study was really the first study, maybe the most important. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and to this day is probably my biggest scientific accomplishment. And we studied 1,566 colon cancer patients from Columbus, Ohio. So not just at Ohio State, also in the Mount Carmel and Ohio health systems, uh, which was really kind of the first time these competing health systems had worked together on a research study. It was pretty remarkable. And we studied also 560 um, endometrial cancer patients and proved, A, that it was feasible to do this, that you could actually take their tumor in the pathology department, look for this characteristic of Lynch syndrome called microsatellite instability. And if you found it, which you do in 15% of the colon cancers and 25% of the endometrial cancers, you then proceed to genetic testing to see if they actually have an inherited mutation in one of the Lynch syndrome genes. And if so, you give them that diagnosis, you give them screening and management recommendations, and then you start cascade testing in their entire family. Uh, that study, I think, found somewhere around, I want to say, 58 individuals with Lynch syndrome, starting from this, you know, over 2,000 individuals with colon and endometrial cancer. But then when you get to the relatives, right. we tested and we found over 100 additional relatives that had Lynch syndrome. And so it really increases exponentially once you get to the family members. Um, and, you know, we've done study after study and the very the largest one we're, we're just publishing now. In fact, we, we submitted the paper the night before Albert passed away. Um, uh, 
which, you know, it, 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 he's still going to be publishing papers for, for quite a while, even though he's passed away because he was so busy right up until the end. Um, and uh, that that was the Pelotonia funded statewide study, which has over 3,300 colon cancer patients in it. But the bottom line is this work has led to over 10 professional organizations recommending that this should be the standard of care for every single colorectal and endometrial cancer patient in the U.S. and moreover in the world. Entire countries have implemented it now. Um, uh, two years ago, I think it was, England began doing it as part of their nationalized healthcare system, and they've just voted uh, in the late, late 2020 to expand to endometrial cancer patients. So there are untold numbers of people who will find out they had Lynch syndrome and be kept from getting cancer because of these discoveries Albert made. And we've done a whole podcast before, <laughs> and the key that you, you talked about then is you can prevent colon cancer with yearly screenings for these at-risk people with the Lynch syndrome. You find it as a precancerous tumor, remove it, they never get cancer. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, I always like to plug colonoscopy when I get a chance, but because people don't like it and they don't want to go, but it is really the only screening test that can prevent a cancer. Every other screening test just tries to catch the cancer while it's small. But when you go in with that camera in a colon and see a polyp and remove it, you actually can stop a cancer before it starts. Now, granted, these people with Lynch syndrome start their colonoscopies between age 20 and 30, depending on the gene mutation, and they go every one to two years for life, whereas people without Lynch syndrome might start at 50 and go every 45 or 50 and go once every 10 years. So they may have 50, 60 colonoscopies in their life compared to other people who have four or five. Um, but it's a great trade-off, much better than getting colon cancer. Yeah, because their odds of getting it are are... I don't even know. Is there a specific percent? It depends on the gene, but it ranges anywhere from 20 to 65 plus percent lifetime risk for colon cancer. So it's quite high. So that's pretty amazing to have as a legacy that you'll share with him that you saved lives. What's that like for the two of you to share that accomplishment? You know, I think that um, we, we were, we were just so focused on, um, really getting it implemented widely. So despite the fact that it's clearly the right thing to do um, and all these professional organizations have recommended it, there have been studies showing that somewhere on the order of 15 to 33% of uh, community cancer hospitals actually do it. Um, so depending on where you get treated for your colorectal cancer, you may or may not get this done. And so we still feel like there's a lot of work to do. In fact, that was kind of the impetus for, for the Ohio Colorectal Cancer Prevention Initiative was to help these smaller hospitals learn how to implement this so that you get the same level of care no matter where you go. Now, before I ask you my final question about Dr. DeLaChapelle's legacy, you, you filled me in a little bit on a very kind of amazing story about his one final Wish trip, trip and wish. Yes. So, um, so he was actually in Finland when he passed away in December and people might, went, might wonder what he was doing there. He did go every summer ever since he moved here to Ohio, but they didn't usually go in the, in the fall or winter. Um, and what had happened was that he was really filling out the last wishes of Dr. Bloomfield. And so um, she um, had left you know, pretty specific instructions about what she, she wanted to have done after she passed away. And um, she was cremated and she wanted half of her remains um, put uh, where she had grown up in Illinois and half in Finland, where they had spent all this time so many years. Um, and it had weighed on him, I think, this whole year that he had not, because of the pandemic, been able to get that done um, and in fact, so there was all this talk about this trip to Finland and, and one discussion, he was going to go to Illinois on the way there. Um, and the other, he was going to get to that later. Uh, luckily, he went to Illinois first, did the half of the ashes there. And, and the whole reason for the trip to Finland was actually to, com to fulfill her, her last wish um, and, and put half of the ashes in Finland where they had spent so much time. Um, so he had done that um, before, he, before he got pneumonia and passed away. And, and, and many of us feel that he was certainly at peace uh, knowing that he had done that for her. So what do you think 
his legacy is. I know there's many, but how, how would you sum that up? It's so hard. There's so many. And I, I didn't even get a chance to talk about his work in uh, leukemias, which hopefully Anne Catherine Eisfeld will touch upon because that's where their work overlapped. They actually had become very interested in, in recent years in the genetics of thyroid cancer. Um, and I won't get to touch on that either. Um, but but this Lynch syndrome work, you know, I mentioned there was an interesting coda in 2015. While he was on an, another uh, very big paper in 2015 with collaborators from Johns Hopkins, and this was the paper where immunotherapy was discovered. Um, and so immunotherapy is um, using your body's own immune system to fight a cancer. And that paper proved that it worked exceptionally well. And guess what? Microsatellite unstable cancers. So all of this work that started back in 1993 when he discovered microsatellite instability has now led to a targeted therapy that is saving even more lives. So now if that colon cancer patient or that endometrial cancer patient who gets the screening test done and finds out they have a microsatellite unstable tumor, not only does that lead to the genetic testing to discover if they have Lynch syndrome or not, but it makes them eligible for immunotherapy. Um, and it's actually, uh, you know, interesting point. The FDA has approved uh, chemotherapy drugs for many, many years, and they've all been for a specific cancer. This was the first FDA uh, tumor agnostic drug approval. So it does not matter where the cancer is. It could be a lung cancer, it could be a colon cancer, it could be a, a ovarian cancer. If it has microsatellite instability, the very characteristic Dr. DeLaChapelle discovered, the, it is an indication for using immunotherapy. Wow. So his, that, that's going to help people for years to come. And in the one time I did interview Dr. Bloomfield, I did ask her about her legacy. And I think the answer is the same for both of them. She said, I'm too busy doing more <laughs> research to think about that. That's exactly right. There was always the next thing. There was always the next thing. Um, you know, and it's times like these, sadly, when we take a step back and look at really the, the measure of the man and, 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 and woman and what they accomplished in their time here and, um, you know, more than most mortals do, right? It's just uh, incredible. We're going to take a quick break, but first, Heather, thank you for sharing uh, this remarkable story of this amazing scientist and, and person. And we're gonna, like I said, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, and Catherine Eisfeld will fill us in on Dr. Bloomfield, but also, again, Dr. DeLachapelle, because she worked with both of them. So thank you, Heather. Thank you. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back, and joining me now is Anne Catherine Eisfeld, a physician scientist who's going to talk to us about Dr. Bloomfield, but also Dr. DeLaChapelle, because she had the opportunity to work with both of these amazing doctors. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Steve. Happy to be here. So first, I know this is going to be difficult to do in, in, a, in a couple minutes. Fill us in on the work and the accomplishments and the research that Dr. Bloomfield specialized in and, and some of her greatest achievements. Absolutely. And it you're absolutely right. It's hard to do it in just a couple of sentences or minutes. I think before even going into her research, I would say the accomplishment of a woman at that time um, to be the first leader of a comprehensive cancer center. And, um, you know, coming in and having these leadership positions as early on as she did and paving the way as she did for, for female physicians and female scientists is, is something that is an, an overarching accomplishment. You know, I had a chance to meet her once in an interview and she talked a little about that. I, 
I have my notes here. She was in her uh, medical school class at the University of Chicago, which was known as one of the few places where women could go. Eight out of 64 of the students were, were women. So you're right. Back then, which was in the 60s, early 60s, just be, to become a woman medical doctor and PhD was pretty rare, right? It was super rare. And then um, Clara being Clara, of course, not being enough, just um, happy to be a um, woman scientist and physician, but um, bringing her own bold ideas up to everybody from right from the beginning. And that's, I think, going through her timeline and her accomplishments, that was one of the major things she did from the beginning. She was the one who went up to to um, to the leadership and said, was the first to say that AML patients who are older than 60 years, which was old at that time, actually should receive treatment. Before she brought it up, AML patients who had leukemia, like acute leukemias, AML is an acute myeloid leukemia, like an aggressive leukemia in here. Patients who were diagnosed with that in back in the 70s, um, probably around that time, they were not even offered treatment. And Clara was the one who said, actually, I think they should be treated. And actually, I think if we treat them, they can be cured. Um, and that was a paradigm shift, a paradigm shift. And now we regularly all over the world, of course, treat leukemia patients, acute myeloid leukemia patients who are older than 60. We are treating them when they're 70 or 80. Um, but it was Clara who, who really was a pioneer in doing that. And she had, and she always talked about it, a lot of pushback from multiple of the senior people back then when she, when she proposed to do that. Who were all men, probably. Yes, exactly. Who are all men. And then, you know, moving on and um, being... First, can I interrupt? Because I've heard that when you say treating uh, AML leukemia patients, she herself treated them. And I heard she would be by their bedside for just hours. Yes. Yes. And that's how she was in here. You know, if Clara did something... um, I don't think that there are many other people who are as intense and dedicated to a single task as Clara would be. So if she's treating a patient, it meant for her not only telling somebody to treat them, but really treating them, seeing them, and knowing all about it. Obviously, I wasn't around at that time, and somebody like Mike Caligiuri or John Bird would be better witnesses. But I know from personal experience, when I was once a patient, um, and had to be in the hospital for, for a couple of days. Clara would be there around the clock. Oh, when Albert, um, um, when her husband would, would, would be sick, she would be there. So I've never seen a more dedicated person at the bedside of, of a patient uh, as, 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 as Clara was. I, that, I heard that from Mike Caligiri. <laughs> that, that, is, that is good. You were about to t- tell us about her sort of next big accomplishment, I think. Absolutely. The next thing, just going, you know, from from the many, was that she was also, for example, the first um, who discovered the Philadelphia chromosome, which is a a very special breakage between two chromosomes in another subtype of acute leukemia, in acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It had been discovered before in a chronic leukemia, but Clara was the first who saw it in here. And that's another great example that she always brings up, which is that she believed in it, but and she knew it was right, but she found. But the journals didn't believe her, and the researchers at first didn't. So I think it was published in the British Journal of Hematology, which is a good journal, don't get me wrong, but it's not one of the highest journals. And she said, well, but sometimes, you know, if you know it's right, you have to publish it, and then you don't wait until a fancy journal accepts it, and um, you have to, to push against it for the real for the real discoveries. So if I understand, and I'm not sure I fully understand the significance of the Philadelphia chromosome, but I've heard that it, in some ways she was ahead of her time in, genetic, in genetics in that, that the Philadelphia chromosome is a genetic mutation 
yes. that caused leukemia that she identified before other people knew how to make identify genetic mutations. Um, is that close? Mm, I, I think you can put it this way. And I think it is a hallmark, as we would call it, is a genetic mutation. The relevance, I think, is even higher at current times. Why is that the case? It is because decades after Clara's discovery, um, um, Brian Drucker and other scientists developed a drug that specifically targets this Philadelphia chromosome, this genetic mutation, that is a standard of care for chronic myeloid leukemia patients and is now also the standard of care for acute lymphoblastic leukemia patients who have this mutation. And that was a game changer because when they were doing very poorly before, um, since Clara identified that they had this mutation and then subsequently we had the drugs, these patients can now be treated and have way better chances to survive the disease. Right, the regular other types of chemotherapy weren't working because they weren't targeting the Philadelphia. Exactly, exactly. We still combine it. You know, in the case of um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, we, we give additional treatment and chronic myeloid. That's all, that's very often all that you need. But that was like an amazing accomplishment. What Clara was amazing at at so many levels was her vision and her strategic view. Like she has a strategic view, what she wanted the James to be, right? And what where OSU could go. Um, the her, her vision that she had for the disease in small aspects and details, like the chromosome I mentioned, but then think of the larger impact. Um, like when she could identify problems and unify people to work together in her inspiring way. Well, let's talk about how and when and, and why you first met uh, the two of them. So what happened? How did you come to Ohio State and connect with, with both uh, Dr. Bloomfield and Dr. De La Chapelle? Mm -hmm. So that was... Um, and, and just so people who might be guessing what your accent is, you came from Germany, <laughs> Columbus and Ohio State, right? I did. I, I did come from Germany. So I used, um, I did my medical training. Actually, at that time, I did a specialized fellowship in leukemia and, and bone marrow transplant at the University of Leipzig. And um, was hoping to become an attending because I love taking care of acute myeloid leukemia patients. But it's very, very difficult for a woman, especially still in, in Germany, to, to come in such a leadership position. And um, my, my friend at that time um, was a postdoc, was, was, was Clara Sebastian Schwind. And um, when I visited him, I met Clara for the first time, who, after hearing that I was doing some translational work, um, actually on iron overload in, in, in Germany, su suggested that I could do what she called a BTA, been to America, um, so a postdoctoral training that would make me then more um, attractive to, to, to get a leadership position um, in Germany. And So the idea was, the idea was you'd come here for a year, work with them, and then go back to Germany. But and she immediately said one year wouldn't be enough. But what she did is that she always had um, two or even up to three fellows from her heavy connections to, to Europe and especially to Germany who would come for two years or three years and then go back. And there's this whole network over entire Europe, but again, especially Germany of Clara's old fellows who are literally leading the major organizations in here. So Clara is very well connected there. I'm the first to state. <laughs> point that, that her mentees are now leading um, cancer labs and centers all over the world. All over the world, yes, yes. And there are so many examples. I think one of the real prominent examples is Hartmut Döner, who is one of the, the, the fellows, I think he was back with her in Roswell Park, um, I hope that's that's where it was. I'm getting confused um, in here. And he is now um, leading not only the largest um, leukemia hospital in, in, in Germany, but also leading Europe-wide and even worldwide multiple of, of the efforts in here. And um, 
we still see him with the current fellows and the previous fellows every year at, at the major conferences we meet and have a big dinner together. So you came over for your BTA. For my BTA, with the idea to just come for into America. Into America. So it was the idea to just come for a couple of years. And the idea was that I would join Clara's lab. Um, but at, and I came and it was a week-long interview with all the leaders here because Clara was very um, picky about her fellows, even though I, I felt uh, very uh, underqualified seeing all the, 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 the qualified and, and, and skilled people in here. And as part of the interview, I would, uh, was going to dinner with both Clara and with her husband, Dr. De La Chapelle. And um, somehow at the end of the dinner, Dr. De La Chapelle suggested after hearing that um, I was really interested in, in, in the genetics and in the research that I should come to, to his lab instead, because what he would be doing, and Heather will elaborate more on that, is basic cancer genetic studies and looking for predisposition in multiple genes. So with Clara right there, he was trying to steal you away for his lab? That was exactly what happened. <laughs> and she said, AK, are you crazy? You yeah. know that Albert's studies take five years or seven years. And for many of them, there will never be a result. And I said, you know, that's fine. Because at the end, I don't want to be a scientist probably, but want to go back and, and, um, and treat patients. So I just, I, I'm happy with just the experience and working with both of you. What I, I little did I know that after just a few months, I was so hooked and my experience uh, experiments happened to work out that from then on, I love basic science. And that was really the turning point in my entire, like, I wouldn't only say career, but my life, right? To, to see the examples of these two great people. And I couldn't possibly practice medicine anymore without doing the research as a site, especially in the field that I am and how rapidly it is moving. And since in Germany, one can't, there, there are practically no physician scientists because of the heavy, um, heavy clinical workload. My only way was, um, after talking with Clara about it, to say, I'm staying here, I wanna do both, I will repeat my training. And I had to fully repeat it to do the the exams again, I repeated residency and I repeated fellowship, um, but it's so worth it because now I, I can be doing exactly what I want to do. And it's the whole time that it took Clara and I have been working together, doing discoveries together um, and obviously working with Albert at the same time as well. So I think that was, I, I, I lacked out then more, more than anybody else. How would you have got to see those two together a lot? How I've heard they had a pretty unique and special relationship. Oh, they absolutely had. I, I think um, they were just from their personalities, you know, very different. Clara being so bubbly and, and uh, uh, like outspoken and Albert being rather calm um, and, uh, and, 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 and quiet, but, they have also, I, I think what I, at least what I witnessed, it's, it's very remarkable that they were able to work together and also if they chose so, to separate work and, um, and, and life very well. So there would be projects I wouldn't ever talk about and, and Clara would always say, Oh, I don't know about these these parts. But if they had joint projects and they published so much together, right in here, then they were just such a great complementary scientific giantness, <laughs> if you would put it in here, and um, had an Im amazing way to communicate with each other. Is there another married couple? Um within the cancer science world that each partner is a world-class scientist the way they were? I mean, that you know of, of course, but. I, I would not think in that extent. You know, I think there are several married couples where those are accomplished scientists, but I don't think in that extreme of the accomplishedness, you know, from, from the perspective 
of the relevance of their findings and their leadership. Yeah, because when when Heather Hample um, talks about Dr. De La Chapelle and his discovery of the Lynch syndrome, that's which really elevates him to the the forefront of geneticists. So, Dr. De La Chapelle was certainly, um, and Clara would always say that Dr. De La Chapelle is the even more accomplished ones. That's what she would always bring in. She always said, you know, she she would have a higher clinical relevance, but she, she was very good in putting herself or anybody into any perspective. So, um, and at least that's what, what she would state about, about herself, that she would put him as a more accomplished scientist. I don't know. I think it's a tie. It is, but that was what she would say. I, I also think, I don't think, and I think I'm very sure that Dr. De La Chapelle, I actually never asked him. I'm pretty sure that he would say the opposite. <laughs> so I think they would uh, vote the other one uh, first in here. Now, um, since Dr. Bloomfield um, passed away, the James has announced that they're going to open the Bloomfield Center for Leukemia Outcomes Research that you're going to be involved in. So what is that? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Steve. It's a very, very important um, and very exciting new center that is being featured. As you said, um, Clara has built such a legacy, as we said, from so many ways, um, in, especially in the past decades, um, being on the forefront of personalized medicine in, in AML, as I would call it, finding genetic markers um, in large patient cohorts and large patient cohorts where she was the driving force in collecting them over the alliance of clinical trials in clinical oncology, or previously CALGB, which is a large cooperative group of multiple major cancer centers um, in here. And she brought all of those together, um, made sure that those samples were collected properly and that we knew what would happen over the, um, over the course of the disease with the patients. Then she used those and looked at molecular markers and um, to find out which patients would do better or worse with treatment and then refine them into risk groups. So all this knowledge um, is here directly with us at OSU and is associated still with the Alliance of Clinical Trials of Oncology, of course. Um, but in order to preserve this legacy and this research that she had and the stuff that she trained over so many years, including statisticians, cytogeneticists, data managers, and of course our fellows, the James under full support of the leadership and especially um, um, with the help of John Bird, who has been a mentee of, of Dr. Bloomfield for many years um, 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 himself and still um, until the very end has been working with her incredibly closely. They um, decided to keep this work that Clara has been doing going and support the center with an initial um, support of $5 million. Um, and this is enough to support her staff. And this is enough to continue to do the kind of um, molecular studies that, that Dr. Bloomfield has been doing. And um, it has been also heavily, uh, like intellectually also supported by, by Dr. De La Chapelle after he, um, after, after, after Dr. Bloomfield's passing. And they offered me um, the, and I still can't believe how lucky I am, the amazing opportunity to, to, to co-direct um, the center together with, with Dr. Bird, who, who is a mentor of mine um, um, as well. And so put this opportunity, but also responsibility in, 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 in our hands to, to, to continue and build upon her legacy and, and continue the work that she has been doing. Well, my, my last question was gonna be, what is the, the legacy of Clara Bloomfield? And you just explained what it is, but I also think one of her legacies is you. I think that is very kind of you to say, but I would not, I, I think, I would agree in the way that I am an example of one of her legacies. 
which besides the science itself um, and her bold thinking and dare to ask the question that, you know, that other people are afraid of asking, even if you challenge somebody, that the legacy is this network of trainees, um, leaders in the field, but also just amazing physicians and scientists that she built all over the world and who were all literally raised because she's not only been mentoring on a scientific level, but we were family with her. We would have Thanksgivings together. We would work together. She would teach us her high moral standards from so many ways that I think this legacy is really this group of people who just love Clara. If you go somewhere, she will have the connections and bring this inspiration all over the world. She would, you know, she has people who admire her from Asia over Australia, the, the Africa where she would travel and of course heavily Europe and all over the United States. And all of those people are united by this, this one person, Clara Bloomfield. And, um, we all connect over that and we will continue to connect. And hopefully the center is going to be an amazing opportunity to continue to collaborate. And that is one of the goals with, with all Clara's previous mentees and to continue the mentorship for, for future physician scientists and to, to, to bring up these bold ideas and, and, and cure cancer and, and leukemia patients. It's kind of remarkable and amazing how, a one scientist, or in this case, two scientists, the impact they can have that just stretches all around the world and lasts long after they're gone. So yes. that, that's a lovely, wonderful story. And thank you for sharing it. Thank you. Yes, it is. It is amazing having the opportunity to, to work with both of them on so many, so many projects um, and, and get both of their inputs is, is, has been the, the honor of my lifetime. Well, thank you for sharing and thank you for continuing the important vital work that they started. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.